Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. And as always, I'm joined by my friend, Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Even perky. Even even perky. Well, what better way to get started? Richard, it is de- it is December 9th. We're recording this as uh, ele- post-election litigation seems to be winding down and we'll get back we'll get to that towards the end of our conversation. But let's look forward to the uh, the upcoming Biden administration, currently the Biden transition. Uh, he is now uh, Vice President-elect Biden is in the process of announcing his cabinet and other senior advisors. What do you think of his uh, administration so far? Start wherever um, you'd like. Um, I would think it's sort of mixed reviews. Um, I guess the Secretary of State, the fellow named Blinken, I have no particular objection to him. I don't know much about him, but I've heard none, and I think that's every bit as important. The uh, one that immediately attracts attention is Lloyd Austin, who's a very distinguished general who's been touted as the first black person to be head of the Department of Defense. Uh, but there have been a number of very serious objections raised against him, and my guess is he will not get through uh, because those objections seem to ring true. There was a one set of objections by a man named John, Jim Golby who said, you do not want to have a situation where former generals become head of the uh, Department of Defense because there's too much inside cronyism. And he said he thought that even George, George Catholic Marshall, when he was the Secretary of Defense in Korea, was a mistake uh, because of what had happened with MacArthur and Truman and that uh, Marshall was on the wrong side of that thing. Some people have actually attacked Jim Mattis uh, of Hoover fame uh, for also being too close to the military. I charge, which I think is much weaker, as best I can tell. But I think the uh, situation is valid. Uh, the other argument, which was made by Matt, Boot. I disagree with his politics on many issues, but he's a superb military historian. And his concern about this is that you're just looking backwards instead of forwards. Uh, what you need to do is to have somebody in the Department of Defense who is going to be able to reposition us away from large, long-scale land wars into drone warfare, remote warfare of one kind or another, and that this is not the man to do it. Uh, there is no alternative that was given. I guess it's a woman named Michelle Fournoy, about whom I don't know very much, who's been constantly put forward as the as the alternative and it may well be that she's going to get it i think at this particular point in time the less the odds are less than even uh that he's going to be confirmed just by reading the sort of the rather systematic and serious opposition that's raised against him not to his person not to his character not to his ability but to the fit and so i will rather than going on about all these cabinet guys uh, uh do you agree with that and then after you're done with that you may want to take on the next cabinet fellow that we could talk about i don't have quite as developed thoughts on austin i mean in, in terms of a final up or down verdict on whether i think he, sh- he should be confirmed or will be confirmed but it is such an interesting situation uh we we remember quite well uh the criticism of jim mattis when he was nominated people saying that it was it was really terrible to uh to appoint somebody who was who was uh, so recently retired from from military service and of course there's the federal statute that 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 governs that or or purports to govern that the fact that we're now having two so close together it starts to look like a trend line and i am not sure how i feel about that civilian control of the military is important um, I mean, that's an understatement. I thought it was particularly important with um, somebody like President Trump, who was who had no experience in the in the military or around the military, and 
I don't need to catalog his other qualities that I, I found underwhelming. Um, and so I was, I, I thought that the situation uniquely, uniquely called for the stability and gravitas and expertise of Mattis. It's a little surprising that uh, President-elect Biden, who is, if anything, a foreign policy candidate, that's where he, he really st- staked himself as a senator, and he played a, a large role, oftentimes in, I think, counterproductive ways, to say the least, in the Obama years. Um, for him to move in this direction is very, very interesting. And there's another trend that I find interesting here, Democratic presidents and uh, secretaries of defense. It's been interesting over the last three Democratic presidencies to see just how, how I don't want to say uncomfortable, I'm searching for the right word, but it's just I mean, let me just say what I'm talking about here. We have Biden going with uh, Secretary of Defense-designate Austin. Recall that President Obama, his Secretary of Defense's first one was the holdover from the Bush administration, Secretary Gates. Later, he had another Republican, uh, Senator Chuck Hagel. In the middle, he had, was it, I guess, Podesta, if that's right. But, you know, people coming primarily from the Republican Party. President Clinton, his was his first Secretary of Defense Bill Cohen, the Republican senator from Maine. I'm trying to think who. That sounds familiar, but I'm not going to give you any warrant. I don't know if he was. I can't remember if he was the first anymore, but he was definitely one of them. It's just it's very interesting how much difficulty Democratic presidents have in finding somebody from sort of the main stream of their party. And I don't mean that ideologically. I just mean the sort of the sorts of people you would normally pick for other cabinet secretaries, former senators, former administration people from the Democratic Party. Um, the, there's just a, always a little weirdness or apprehensiveness around Democratic presidents selecting their secretaries of defense. I find it fascinating. And I really thought Biden would be the last one who, uh, who would be the least likely to to turn in that mm-hmm. direction. Does he have anybody whom he would want? I don't know much about Miss Flournoy, although I've never seen anything negative written about her. Uh, but you know, one of the things I think that troubles me not only about this appointment, but there are others, is there are people who just don't seem to have qualifications in the areas which they're going to be chosen to run. Um, I think of the situation uh, that we have with Xavier Bacara um, with respect to HHS. I mean, what does this man know about anything having to do with that? Um, I don't know if this would endear you to him, but his major occupation as Attorney General was suing Donald Trump, and I regard that as a set of skills that would be thoroughly depreciated by the time he was to become head of this situation. And the question I I would want to know, does he know enough about the actual issues that he could handle what is a very large and complicated department in which, you know, a division of which is, you know, just simply something small like Medicare or Medicaid. Um, You really want somebody who knows that stuff. And frankly, it doesn't strike me that there's anything in his record which says that he does. Am I wrong about this, Adam? I mean, you know, this is a very tentative show because these are all new faces to some extent. I'm just curious what your views are. Well, about Flournoy really quick, um, everybody seemed to think she was the conventional the conventional wisdom indicated that she was going to be picked. She's very close to Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State designate. Um, I think they they have a consulting firm together. Uh, she was originally Jim Mattis's first pick to be his deputy deputy Secretary of State, um, which I think is a very very high Defense. very high recommendation in her favor. Um, she has she wrote a, an important and interesting piece last summer over uh, China policy, and uh, America needed to take a a more proactive and clearer stand against China's expansions. And the focus, as the Wall Street Journal points out in its editorial. Uh, this morning, um, titled Another General at Defense. Uh, the Wall Street Journal points out that 
that this pick really seems to focus um, Biden's attention on the Middle East, which is where Austin's expert experience comes from. And Biden himself in a piece for The Atlantic really framed his selection of Austin in terms of their background together in, in the Middle East. Right now, China seems to be the key issue. And to see um, Biden pick Austin over Flournoy seems to be a deprioritization of China. I'll add just as a footnote to that, there's there's rumblings out there today uh, that Pete Buttigieg is under consideration for ambassador to China. And that just strikes, whatever you think of, of Mayor Pete, um, it just strikes me as as really reckless to put somebody so inexperienced in at the, the most important uh, diplomatic post that the United States has right now. I do remember how uh, a lot of people mocked my my former governor, Terry Branstad, when Trump picked him, not knowing that Branstad had longstanding connections, uh, friendships with uh, people in the Chinese government at a very high level based on people coming, their visits to the United States. And Branstad obviously had a very difficult time uh, that he was trying to navigate as ambassador, but I think he did a pretty good job. I think the idea of putting putting Mayor Pete in such an important role just really is 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 astonishing. And if it were to happen, I think it would it would it would rival this pick of of Becerra at HHS. And my two cents on that one is that the closest analog that we have to this is actually Scott Pruitt at the EPA when Trump picked Pruitt after Pruitt had spent four or eight years suing the Obama EPA. President Trump put him in office. And I, I knew Pruitt some beforehand, and I really admired him and his work as Oklahoma Attorney General. I, just, I was very sorry to see how badly things went when after he was in office. I think he made a lot of mistakes, and I think he, he also um, at times was treated unfairly. But really, I think most of the fault lies with him. Um, Becerra is the exact same thing. They're now taking somebody whose only experience with HHS is suing it and saying, okay, why don't you run it? Maybe the most charitable view of this is that Biden just has a very low opinion or low expectations of what HHS is actually doing right now, uh, that he's going to prioritize the CDC and and NIH and other aspects of the United States um, and the FDA um, and other aspects of the U.S. sort of health um, administration. And he just doesn't see HHS in the same terms. But I look at this in the same way that I think Ross Douthat was the one who wrote this week, that this seems to be the clearest example of Biden exploding the culture war by putting somebody at HHS whose major qualification other than suing um, uh, suing the it's agency under Trump is, is be, well, that and also just being very, very pro, pro-abortion and 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 really once again leveraging hhs um with obamacare against those who have religious qualms or other qualms with uh look i mean I, I would put it to you in a slightly different fashion um i think you know the COVID is very important i'm very much against mr fauci being appointed as head of this operation because i think he's made a mess of everything but that's a different conversation but hhs has a huge series of responsibilities maybe i'm forgetting it but isn't Social Security and various kinds of programs like that run out of that office in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And if they are, well, somebody has to pay attention to those kinds of things. I mean, the COVID question, if the vaccines go well or if something else works out, should be uh, a short-term issue, maybe lasting, God forbid, another year. Uh, but HHS is going to be around along that. And uh, to me, it turns out that I would put it in a slightly different fashion. Um, 
being a head of a law office is being a head of a law office. It's not like running a standard business. And when HHS is a big business and to have run it, you need somebody who has real executive experience and understands how to delegate and so forth. Uh, your product is rather different in running a firm like that or an operation like that than it is running attorneys general's office where you're churning out lawsuits where I'm sure he's very competent, even if I may disagree with his policy. So I'm completely baffled by that one. And I, I fear that it may be the abortion issue or the identity politics issues and so forth. Uh, but I do have a rather strong view on that issue. I, I think cabinet positions are just too important, do too many things on a day-to-day basis for identity politics to play any part whatsoever in the ways in which these people are chosen. I mean, thousands upon thousands of lives, billions of dollars are at stake in which is done right or wrong. And I just don't see Biden as being responsive to that. And you mentioned Budici as a potential ambassador to China. I mean, somebody has to grow up. First of all, it has to be Budici. has to be, I mean, he's a bright guy, I'm sure, but he needs a lot more experience. But I would have thought that this was a real slap to the Korea people in the Foreign Service. Um, somebody there who must have earned this kind of promotion by virtue of hard work over years in doing this. And so I am uh, not a champion of uh, this kind of renegade appointments coming in there. I, I thought many people said about Rex Tillerson, if I'm not mistaken, that one of the things that made him a very difficult head of Secretary of State uh, in many ways is that he just didn't understand the internal, uh, shall we say, culture of the organizations that he was put to run and and managed to wreck programs that he didn't understand so that nobody could put them back together again. Picking ambassadors is obviously a part political situation, but I'm willing to have a political ambassador to Luxembourg. I'm not willing to have a political ambassador to China. So I'm again disappointed in Biden, and my fear about him is that his health is sufficiently precarious that when people lean on him, he capitulates uh, in a certain way because he doesn't have the energy or at this particular point the stamina in order to fight off bad ideas. So I hope that he's able to right this ship, but as I look down the list of people who he seems to have, um, Blinken, as I said, seems fine. An old associate, Flournoy, I think would be fine given what you've just told me, uh, but I certainly don't think much of uh, Bacheria in this situation. Marsha Fudge, again, strikes me as more of an advocate, uh, a congressional type, rather than somebody who has an intimate knowledge of the housing markets. Um, somebody like Sean Donovan, I gather, is running for mayor in New York, was pretty knowledgeable under Obama because he had worked through all of these things. And again, uh, congressional types are not the same thing as administrative types. And one, I think, has to be very careful about all of that stuff. This is speaking from an outsider. Am I wrong, misguided, or am I unfortunately no, I, correct? No, I, I think Generally, you're correct here. I um, I, one of the things that that bothered me the most about the the Trump administration setting aside is, I mean, I I, I by and large like the Trump administration. Other than Trump, I liked yes. a lot of the so much of the regulatory <laughs> initiatives. But one of the things that frustrated me as somebody who cared about the regulatory issues in the Trump administration was that President Trump really deprioritized the and 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 McConnell and and. Both on his own terms, but also with Senate with Senate Democrats' obstruction, really deprioritized the appointment of strong leadership at agencies, strong Senate confirmed leadership, and I thought that was a huge problem through the Trump administration. And I, I like a lot of the nominees. I mean, I wouldn't pick them. I disagree with them on the policy, but um, a lot of the nominees so far, I'm, I'm comfortable with as as responsible administrators. But the uh, the Buttigieg name float is not one of them. And and on um, 
Uh, on one last note on HHS, again, sort of looking back at history, you might recall President Obama's original nominee for HHS was Tom Daschle. And his nomination flamed out within days because of questions about financial impropriety um, with Daschle and his post-Senate career. Uh, and that's how we got Sebelius. I, I, surely Becerra is not going to withdraw. But this one strikes me as the one most deserving of Senate rejection. If Republicans hold the Senate, I generally think that the Senate should be somewhat deferential, um, not very deferential, but somewhat deferential. Um, but this is a case where I think they really do need to stand up and call for greater um, expertise um, at this office. I mean, Alex Alex Azar was not the most noteworthy part of Trump's uh, pandemic team, but he seems to have been a fairly um, responsible steward of the agency, as was uh, his predecessor. Um, and, and so I, I really think that Senate Republicans should call for a better nomination if they're going to pick one to block. I know people have focused on Neera Tanden, um, the political activist who's not going to be nominated to run OMB. Um, that one was is she going to be nominated? Yeah, Trump. Or well, not? Trump. I'm sorry, Biden announced her, and and so, I, I, barring any surprises, the nomination will come through. Um, she will not. be Well, confirmed. yeah, but the thing is, if she's not confirmed, I think it's going to be in part because of her political activism against the senators. And I understand. Yeah, that's that. That's a perfectly fine reason for them to reject her. But I actually think that in many ways, Becerra is now the much more crucial. Um, the, the much more crucial nomination who res, who deserves Senate scrutiny and ultimately the Senate's rejection. And, and I guess the argument for that is OMB is smaller than HHS, right? Well, yes, yes. Now, I I don't want to I don't want I don't I want mean, to downplay yeah. OMB. I think OMB is incredibly important. And if anything, I think no, I agree with I, that I think, too. But I, I, mean, I do it, think OMB probably deserves a higher qu- class of. Of, of appointees than it's been getting recently. It's in, it's incredibly important, and uh, the the budget is is and has been, and even more so going forward, will be an incredibly important issue. It'd be great to have a real expert at OMB. We're not going to get that with Neera Tandon, um, but I'd say all things considered, I'm I'm more worried about about Becerra at HHS. Well, I mean, you know, I'm just going to comment. If you're more worried about A than B, it means you're not pleased with B. Um, and, you know, what I do about the cabinet situation is he's got a complete blank slate. He should not be politically indebted to anybody. And he could be able to appoint a first-class cabinet. And uh, looking at the ways in which these nominations seem to be coming forward, um, I, I really don't think that he has done that. I mean, the uh, Ms. Fudge, again, I mean uh, – Congress, not an administrative agency. Uh, a commitment to affordable housing is not the same thing as being able to run an intelligent housing policy. I mean, in fact, the administration of the affordable housing projects that we've had under the Obama administration, some of the lawsuits that were brought by citizens opposing what had happened in various counties like Westchester and so forth, were generally, I think, debacles of the highest order. And, and so when I think what you want in somebody in the housing situation is somebody who is not going to concentrate on trying to pour subsidies into these programs, most of which will be dissipated. Uh, The most important situation is to make sure to the extent that you have collaborations with the state who often take the lead on on land use policy is to get the building codes, get the zoning codes, get the development ordinances, get the coastal reservations more in order. I mean, a place like California is going to die unless it fixes its housing markets. I don't know if you recall, but I guess just 
yesterday or recently. Uh, we have yet another California form, firm, Tesla, moving to Austin, Texas, because the business environment is better. Uh, and the governor of the state, or Newsom, I think, has become a, a kind of a, a tragic public figure, starts to say, well, we may not have the cheapest state, but we have the best state for business. Who is he kidding? I mean, every business organization writes California back into the bottom five and Texas in the top five. And he seems to think that he's supplying quality in exchange for what's going on, and he's not. And the housing policy in these states is a shambles. And I think that what you really need to do with the federal person is to get somebody who's going to try to work with the states in order to untangle it. The world is a much better place if you improve markets by deregulating than by adding subsidies to an already overregulated market. And judging from what I've seen about Ms. Fudge, uh, she is going to be in the pour more dollars into the subsidized market, have that breakdown, uh, then constrict because the prices and the regulations are going to be so high, uh, the private market. And I cannot see her doing anything positive to help the housing situation. So again, I, I think this is a diversity appointment. I don't think it's an appointment of somebody who really knows what's going on in these things and can try to figure out where there's a lot of running room as to how it is when you look to HUD grants and HUD conditions and HUD regulation uh, that you move them in the direction of deregulation, which I think is the only way that these markets are going to get themselves sorted out. Well, speaking of markets, uh, Richard, we haven't yet touched on perhaps President Biden's highest profile nomination. Uh, Janet Yellen, the former chairwoman of the Fed, uh, is going to be Biden's nominee to be secretary of the Treasury. Uh, Any thoughts on that one? Um, Yes, I do have some thoughts. Um, uh, I think it's this is a person who cannot challenge on the grounds that she has insufficient uh, experience in working in these areas. She was a pretty successful chairman of the Fed, I think. Uh, my concerns to her go on two grounds. Uh, one ground is I think she's probably more in favor of easy money than I am. Uh, I think it would do a great good for the economy to try to get interest rates back to a positive level and to try to reduce the amount of discretion that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have in trying to run the economy. Uh, the more serious concern that I have is that she's said to be something of a climate hawk. And I can't think of anything more dangerous than having a secretary of treasury whose job is supposed to deal with the financial issues, trying to weigh in heavily so as to regulate and coerce banks to make loans to certain kinds of preferred climate projects or some other kinds of situation. Industrial policy is, I think, always a mistake uh, when it's run by government. And when it's run by the Biden team, I think it's likely to be more so. Uh, John Kerry is a name that disappoints. He's not a cabinet portfolio, not a Senate confirmation, but he's certainly going to be influential. And I'm afraid that they're just going to push much too much uh, pressure on the green revolution as opposed to trying to stabilize the way in which the economy works. And in general, I think there's uh, much too much concern with global warming as a serious issue uh, relative to other kinds of climate management, like controlling forest fires in California by having sensible land use practices. And I, I so I'm a little bit uneasy about that. I, I don't believe that this would stop her nomination from being confirmed. Uh, I'm not even sure if I were in the Senate, I would vote against her because I agree with you. Uh, the operative phrase in dealing with uh, cabinet appointments is you have somewhat deferential. That was your phrase, and I think it's right. So I might even vote for her, but that doesn't mean that I'm not uneasy about this because I think, in effect, uh, the problem that we all have with the Biden administration, that is me and maybe you, uh, 
is that uh, it's going to be too much Sanderlice, Bernie Sanders-like in his choice of people and in its program. And that leaves me very, very uneasy. On the domestic front, I would like him to be like uh, Clinton was in his uh, first term of presidency. Uh, but I think he's likely to be even further to the left than Obama, who for all of his radicalism always had a little bit of reluctance to push too hard on some of these issues because he was afraid, rightly, I think, of upsetting a boat by doing something whose consequences he did not fully understand. So he had a kind of a little bit of caution about him, which I thought was quite commendable. I'm not sure that Biden has that. I'm not sure that Yellen has it. So what are your views? Well, I, like you, I, I think if I were in the Senate, I would vote for Yellen. And, and I'd really encourage our listeners, if you want to read a positive appraisal of her nomination, uh, Richard's colleague at the Hoover Institution, John Taylor, has had an essay out this week uh, called A Monetary Mind at the Treasury. Uh, his his support for for Yellen, but also his notions on what she ought to do in terms of of promoting a sounder monetary policy from the Treasury. But like you, I, what I find most interesting and most disconcerting about the nomination is the focus on climate policy at the Treasury. This is something that Biden telegraphed before uh, Yellen was was announced. Uh, his transition website, which went up, I think, the day after the election. Uh, it listed four key areas of policy priority, and one of them was climate change. And they made very clear on that page that they saw the Treasury Department and other financial regulators as playing a very important role in climate policy. Now, we can bracket the debate over climate policy. I, I didn't like the EPA's approach to it under Obama. My guess is I won't I, – I will – I, I will not like the the legal interpretations that undergird Biden's climate policy at the EPA, but at least Obama focused on on EPA and the Department of Transportation with this climate policy. The idea that we're going to do all these, we're going to do so much sort of secondary regulation through the Treasury Department, through the the the, the financial uh, oversight, uh, sorry, the financial. Financial Stability Oversight Council, the interagency commission uh, that, that Dodd-Frank created for systemic financial risks. They will look at climate risks, I suspect, as systemically important. We saw the CFTC under President Trump issue a report just a few weeks ago on climate risk and commodities regulation. I think more and more we're going to see the financial regulators called upon to tackle climate change as well as some other policies uh, the Fed, I think, will be pushed more and more to somehow add combating inequality to its traditional dual mandate. Um, we'll see the, F, the aforementioned FSOC focus on technology, technological innovation, and systemic financial risk. We'll see the SEC getting involved in everything from climate regulation to campaign finance regulation. And I think this is going to be one of the major themes of the Biden administration for, for on issues of administration and the administrative state. They're going to lean more and more on the financial regulators because financial regulators have immense power and discretion with many fewer guardrails than other regulatory agencies. Now, the reason why we have it that way is that financial regulators have generally had very narrow uh, lanes. And they were trusted to have a lot of power, a lot of discretion, and a lot less oversight in those limited lanes. And they've built up a lot of institutional capital and credibility. And now I think the Biden administration is going to spend that capital and that credibility on its favorite policies. And that's a huge mistake because it's going to not just politicize those agencies even more. Uh, it's going to undermine those agencies' credibilities in their own original areas of jurisdiction. And so I think this is a big mistake. And one last, I guess, data point on this. 
President Obama's pick for National Environmental Council director is not a, an economist, uh, not even an, not even sort of an economist slash economic pundit like Larry Kudlow. Uh, it's Brian Deese, the former domestic policy um, council director, I think, under Obama, whose specialty was really on climate issues and things like that. And it shows once again that they're going to prioritize uh, they're going to turn the National Economic Council into a driver of climate policy. I, I just think this is a big, 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 big mistake. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's a double mistake. I think, first of all, you're right about multiple mandates always being dangerous. Uh, to make that point even a bit more sharply, one of the things, of course, about the Fed is it's supposed to have a dual mandate, which is to stabilize the currency and to promote jobs. Uh, I believe that the Fed can do the first thing well. I believe it cannot do the second thing at all. But every time that you try to bring the jobs piece back into the equation, it's going to undermine the ability of the Fed to create stability in financial markets, which is its primary situation. If you're trying to figure out what you do with job markets, what you do is you work that through the Department of Labor or some other department. I gather uh, Biden has not made his announcement yet for Secretary of Labor. I suspect it will not be Eugene Scalia being renewed. Uh, that's a bad joke. Uh, but I'm very worried about him because, I mean, he's too much of a friend of unions on these things and too much opposed to the gig economy and so forth. Uh, so I'm not happy about it. But usually agencies that have single focus are going to do better than those that have multiple focus. Uh, it's easy to assemble a team of experts on one issue than on many issues, and you don't have to fight the trade-off. So if you want to regulate climate change, what you do is you think about climate change, and then you could ask the question, uh, how have we done with respect to carbon dioxide emissions and whether or not this matters? And, and it turns out that whatever one thinks about the Trump administration as an administration, if you look at the American performance, given the commitment that you see on the corporate side already with respect to carbon dioxide reductions, I don't think there's any need whatsoever to push on uh, this particular button in terms of domestic policy, the only issue that you have to face with respect to China, the only, rather with respect to the climate, the only one that matters is China. Uh, their output is already twice ours. Uh, the gap is getting wider. Their new coal equipment is getting more heavy and all the rest of this stuff. The American firms seem to be doing very well on this. And so it's the foreign policy issues that are there. And that's why Abudici in, in China is crazy. But it's also, I think it's a mistake to basically seriously compromise the financial system in order to pursue something which is probably well handled to begin with and doesn't need these folks. And I might add, you know, I'm a skeptic on most of this stuff. Uh, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but I like to remind myself and everybody else, so is water vapor. And it's much, much more powerful, probably by an order of a close to 100, if you take into account both the amount and the potency of that stuff. And to think that you could control the system through carbon dioxide emissions, as opposed to doing it through some other situation, if you can do it at all, I think is a big mistake. So I think, in effect, that Biden is going to basically mess things up with respect to this, um, because I fear that he believes what he says. Uh, that's why I worried about it. That's why I was opposed to his presidency. I mean, uh, my view about Trump is uh, I agreed with his administration more often than not. Uh, I always like to describe my views on Trump as Trump a la carte. That is, you have to look at him very closely to see what you do and do not want. Uh, with Biden, unfortunately, I'm really hard pressed to see any one of these areas 
where I am confident that he is going to put the people in place and the programs in place that are going to move this nation forward. The uh, one exception to that so far is state. I have nothing to say against Mr. Blinken, and I think he will be confirmed. Uh, but all the other appointments that I've seen, including uh, Mr. Wils- Vilsack, uh, the fellow who's in charge of agriculture, he seems to be um, very much in favor of sort of export cartels and trying to defend the industry against uh, various forms of deregulation. And I don't think that's a particularly good program either. So I'm not altogether happy uh, Richard, with I have this. To admit, this is the and first you- I heard that uh, Tom Vilsack, another one of my former governors back in Iowa, uh, had been nominated to run the USDA again. That's 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 interesting. Um, I, I, I'd say I just one last note on the on the climate point. I mean, I'm, I'm worried about turning the financial regulators into the everything regulators. And we didn't even mention, you know, Operation Choke Point, the efforts of the Justice Department and the CFPB to regulate by leveraging their power over markets and banks. I think that's going to be a big issue again. Um, it'll be Operation Choke Points. It'll be, you know, on many, many policies. But even as somebody who does think that we they're that the climate change is a significant problem and it really requires a policy response. I look at what they, they're trying to do, I mean, now through the financial agencies, it looks like, but even before, under really strained readings of the Clean Air Act, um, one that the Supreme Court upheld in um, Massachusetts versus EPA and, and one that they struck down in Utility Air Group, uh, Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, what this really calls for is significant legislation. And Democrats will always say, well, we wish Congress would legislate, but it doesn't. I think the reason why Congress doesn't actually legislate on this uh, at all is that they know that the agencies will do it all unilaterally. I wrote a piece for Hoover's Defining Ideas blog on this a couple of years ago saying that it's not just you know presidents saying if Congress won't act, I will. It's presidents will act, therefore Congress won't. And the fact that the EPA, DOT, and now Treasury, the Fed, and everybody else are going to try to unilaterally solve climate change – means that Congress will never have any hydraulic pressure around it to actually compromise. And the compromise surely wouldn't be to the liking of of a lot of Democrats, but I think it would be better than what we have right now, which is just total uncertainty from one administration to the next over climate policy, the inability to plan going forward. Obviously, at at the Hoover Institution, Secretary Schultz has led the way on on calling for a carbon price for for years and years. That sort of thing will just never happen in Congress uh, so long as as the administration just puts all of its bags in the administrative state basket. And I think that's a big mistake. Well, you're certainly right about the flip-flop problem with respect to administrative states, which is compounded by doctrines like Chevron deference, which gives agencies the enormous power to change their views without explaining why. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm in favor of something like the, the carbon tax, which Schultz supports. Uh, the difficulty with the tax is you have to figure out what its optimal level is going to be, and that requires you to make some sort of an assessment yeah. of the underlying risk. And his assessment of that risk is much greater than my assessment that risk. So his tax is much higher than the tax that I have. I think that the problem has been seriously overstated from time, from beginning. If one goes back uh, to the Club of Rome, it's 1975, and that never panned out. Uh, The Inconvenient Truth was written in 2006. By 2016, we're supposed to be fried crepe paper, and it turns out we're doing fine. Uh, There are all sorts of dislocations, but trying to tie them to climate change, uh, to carbon dioxide emissions, I think is 
is, is still an extremely dubious type situation. There are many people out there, I think, who agree with me, but this then gets me to yet another problem, uh, which arose during the campaign, which I think is only going to get aggravated. Uh, the definition of an expert today is somebody who agrees with the dominant opinion, and there's no expertise on the other side. There's a constant effort to marginalize people whose professional skills lead them to different judgments from the one that we have. Uh, that's one of the fake vices, I think, of Anthony Fauci. He just doesn't listen to anybody, notwithstanding the fact that I think he makes some very, very serious mistakes and judgments on such things as hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. Uh, he should be backing the former, not the latter, but he's got this exactly backwards and, and so forth. So um, uh, there seems to me in the Biden administration to be an incipient form of intolerance of the sort that we saw much during the campaign. And, and if he's backed up on that and he doesn't listen to rival voices, uh, he's going to make his administration much worse. There's a long literature on corporations which say, uh, if you don't hear different dissenting opinions, you always make the wrong decisions. American politics is beginning to sound more like that. This received media position dare not disagree with it. And I fear that the Biden administration is going to be like that. Whenever somebody starts to say, I only rest on the science, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. Um, and I don't believe he's going to rest solely on the science. I think it's already shaping up to be a cabinet that's going to leave me somewhat apprehension. And I guess this then gets me to the last point. Uh, if the Republicans do not control the Senate, I think there's going to be serious. Well, speaking of the elections, uh, I said at the very beginning, uh, we touch on the, the post-election litigation. We only have a few moments left. Um, but as we record this, uh, the Supreme Court has turned away pencil, the, the, the lawsuit challenging Pennsylvania's uh, handling of the election, the one that Senator Ted Cruz sort of volunteered to do the oral argument for. The court turned away that call for an injunction, but more recently now we've seen a lawsuit by the state of Texas. Um, uh, the state of Texas, it's an original suit in the Supreme Court because it's one state suing other states. They're suing Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin, calling on the Supreme Court to um to to block to nullify those states handling of their own elections because the the complaint urges uh those states handling of the elections has injured Texas's own interests in the election uh, i i have uh, it would be an understatement to say i have a low view of this opinion of this uh of this case both on its merits and its prospects for success but what do you think well, on the prospect for success, the lower and upper bound are, I think, identical. It's probably zero. Um, it, it's simply too late to come for any serious situation. I mean, I think the Trump campaign has done a terrible job in trying to present its view of the issues. If they were wrong, well, they deserve their fate. If they're right, they managed to conceal the strength of their case by yelling fraud at so many times in so many places at so many people that after a while, everybody turns out to be tone deaf. It, also doesn't help that Mr. Paxton is somebody with serious political problems in his own backyard, and there are going to be people who are cynically going to say about him, maybe correctly about him, that this is just an effort to secure a pardon for the many various offenses that he's now involved with and the turmoil in his own office. Um, I read the complaint. I don't have as low a view of it as you do, uh, but I think it's just call it a stretch to say that uh, the state of Texas can tell the state of 
uh, Louisiana, the state of Michigan, any state you care to mention, how it should run their own internal election process is a long haul. If they turn down Pennsylvania, they're going to turn this down. And I think what we should do now is basically think about the transition. And at this particular point, I think that I'm going to go back to my familiar role as being part of the loyal opposition, uh, because I just don't see much in the Biden administration at this point that I support. Uh, but I don't believe, and I think on balance, it would be just a terrible mistake of a somebody at this late date to try to upset an election which took place five five weeks ago. It's an infinity of time. It's not going to happen. It should not happen. I say this with a certain amount of sadness, uh, but I think, Adam, that, that you are right. Even if this lawsuit were better than you make it out to be, it's not good enough, not nearly good enough, even to get the Supreme Court to consider it. So they took notice of it as they must, but anybody who treats that as a sign that they're going to actually delve into the merits, I think, is wrong. My guess is it will be dismissed within 48 hours. Well, it will be interesting to see if Senator Cruz once again offers his talents in oral advocacy for this case as well. Maybe we'll find out by the time we tape our next episode. In fact, when we come back in a few weeks to tape another episode, there'll be more cabinet nominations to discuss. It'll be closer to the inauguration. That'll be taking shape. And so there will be a lot to discuss. But in the meantime, Richard, I know Hanukkah is coming up in a couple of days and, and Christmas and New Year's to follow after that. And so I just want to wish you a very, very happy holiday season. And same to you. I'm extremely ecumenical on holidays. <laughs> I am too. And I want to wish, wish the same to, to all of our listeners. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. And please do join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.